Well, good morning, Bachelor Creek. It is so good to be with you today. Um, man, my, I got to say, I got good news that my family and I, we've made the move uh, from Texas uh, to uh, Indiana. Uh, we're here now, and I uh, just got to say a huge thank you to um, Jeff Leslie and Todd Schindler, two elders here at Bachelor Creek, who uh, flew down to Texas to help get us packed up and moved and then drove the moving trucks back uh, last weekend. And uh, we're settled now. And when we got here to Wabash, there was a huge team of people that helped us unload all of our things. Uh, so many of the deacons here uh, and other men and women showed up to help us just feel uh, loved and supported. And uh, we're so excited for our new ministry here and what we're going to be able to do as a church to impact our community uh, and beyond. And so thank you uh, for the love and support. Uh, we're excited. And today we begin a uh, new summer series that we're calling Summer Blockbusters. And uh, we're going to be looking at the books of Jonah and Judges. And the reason we're calling it Summer Blockbusters is because if you read these books in the Old Testament, you'll realize that they, they sound like the, they could be the plot to a Hollywood movie. And there's excitement, there's adventure, there's intrigue, there's romance, but at the heart of it, these are stories that point to the glory of Christ, and uh, we're going to discover that together. So today, uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Jonah's right there in between uh, Obadiah and Micah, which probably doesn't help you a whole lot, does it? Uh, it's there in, in all those books of the Bible that sound like Star Wars characters, you know, there's Obadiah, Micah, Obi-Wan, uh, Jonah, Nahum, Chewbacca, they're all kind of right there together. Uh, but we're going to begin together in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. This is how it starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. And I think we've got to just stop right there because if people know anything about Jonah, they know that it's got something to do with Jonah telling God no about going and preaching to the Ninevites, and then it's him getting swallowed up by a giant fish. And a lot of people, they get hung up right there, and they say, well, hold on, this can't be true. That's impossible. Staying alive in a fish for three days? It's got to be a myth. Yet, yet I would just simply tell you that this isn't a story about a big magical fish. It's a story about God. And honestly, I wouldn't even put this in my top ten hardest things to believe list in the Bible. Why don't we just go to the first verse of the Bible? God spoke the entire world and all the galaxies into existence with a word? Or Luke chapter 2, God is born as a baby and he raises, uh, he, he grows up to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and then he himself is crucified and rises again? So, so why would you pick this story out and say, this is impossible? If God created all of the galaxies with a word, and this shouldn't be too big for him. And I think that's the question. Is, is there a God who works in the world or not, and was he present in Jesus? If so, then a story like Jonah shouldn't be a big problem, right? People, other people will say, well, well maybe it's, it's meant to be read as a parable, you know, kind of a, a fictionalized story with, with some spiritual meaning. But the problem with that is that the book of Jonah isn't written that way. There's names, there's dates, there's details. It's written in the genre of history. It says, Jonah, son of Amittai. Not once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. In fact, the book of 2 Kings tells us that there are some other things that this Jonah, son of Amittai did. 
But I think the clincher is this. Jesus himself thought that this story was an actual historical event. He referred to the history of Noah as a very important sign for his own ministry. You, you see it in Matthew 12, 41 and Luke eleven thirty, 30. And I just feel like Jesus would know. Verse 2 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, two things right out the gate about Nineveh. It was a very large, and it was a very wicked city. It was huge. Jonah says it took three days to walk across the length of the city. Historians tell us that the walls of Nineveh were so wide that, that you could drive three chariots across on the walls. It was a huge city with big architecture, the best singers, and the best of culture was represented in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Secondly, Nineveh was very wicked, which oftentimes is the case of very large cities. The Ninevites were known as some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. In their own histories, Nineveh boasted about how cruel they were. If you look at some of their ancient hieroglyphics, and we're going to show some pictures on the screen that depict their, their cruelty, they show graphically how brutal these people were. When they would conquer another city, they would skin alive a lot of the men, women, and children, and they would spread out their skins over the city walls. And then they would bury these people up to their necks in sand, and they would pull out their tongues, and they would drive a stake through their tongues, and they would just languish there in pain and dying of thirst. And then they'd make them listen to Miley Cyrus songs over and over and over. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about the last part. But make no mistake about it. These people were unspeakably brutal. They would rape the women and kill them. They, they even boasted about raping and killing little girls. There's one account that describes how they would capture foreign soldiers and they would impale some of them alive outside the city gates. Then they would behead the people and they would make a mountain of their heads and it would be a sign. So they could say, this is what happens to those who dare oppose the Assyrians. So I want you to understand, these are the people that Jonah was asked to go and preach to. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that one of Nineveh's primary targets was its neighbors to the south, Israel. Which means that Jonah and the people he knew, they were victims themselves of Ninevite cruelty. And so quite naturally, Jonah doesn't want to do this. And can we blame him? Like, let's just not be so quick to cast judgment on poor old Jonah. He had a very personal bitterness against these people. Verse 3 continues. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Right here begins Jonah's rebellion against the Lord. God clearly told him to go, and he turned and went the other way. And not just a little ways, because Tarshish was 1,500 miles away from Nineveh. There's a couple things we need to notice. First, Jonah was upstanding in every other way. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was one of Israel's premier prophets. He, was, he had a very successful ministry during one of Israel's most finest hours. 
He was like the Billy Graham of Israel. I want you to write this down. Rebellion is simply saying no to God. Rebellion is simply saying no to God. Think about how we often try to evaluate our own personal walk with God by comparing ourselves to others. So we look at others and we say, well, I go to church more, or I give more, or I'm, I'm a more moral person. But you see, lordship is one of those things that if it's not absolute and total, it's not real. Hear me when I say this. You are never farther from God than when you're close to him and you say no. There are a lot of Christians who they look like they're walking with God in every other area, in every other way, but there's some area of their life that they're saying no to God in. Maybe for you it's a relationship that you know is not pleasing to God, but you won't quit it. Maybe for you, there's a sacrifice that God is leading you to make. You know that there's people in need, and God's laid it on your heart to provide for them in financial ways, but you don't want to give it up. You've got too tight of a grip on it. Maybe God's convicted you of your lifestyle, but you continue to persist on. Maybe it's a sacrifice of your time that God is leading you to make. Maybe it's like Jonah to leave family and friends and go serve him somewhere. You're never farther away from God than when you're close to him and you say no. The second thing I notice in verse 3 is it says he found a ship bound for that port. Some translations say he found a ship ready for Tarshish. Have you ever noticed how the readiness of the ship is like God's okay on a plan of action? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they're clearly doing something that's against the will of God, and they're like, but, but you don't understand. Look, everything just kind of worked out. Doors just kind of opened. I've talked with people who were in the midst of adultery, and they said, well, you don't understand, Joel. Like, I was miserable in, in my marriage. But then I met this person, and I just felt like God wanted me to be happy. But what if that was the enemy laying a trap for you? Right? Let me tell you something. If you want to run away from God, you will always find a ship bound for Tarshish. You will always find a ship ready to go. You have an enemy whose whole role is to ready the ship for your disobedience. If you allow your eyes to always wander, there will almost always be a woman who will return your flirtations. If you want out of your marriage, there will always be a too-good-to-be-true relationship that will present itself. If you tolerate greed in your life, there will always be a great deal on something to buy or a way to cheat or steal to get ahead. Or how about this one? Well, I, I just had a peace in my heart about it. Like if, if peace in your heart is God's okay in a situation that overrides his word in your life. One of Satan's primary roles is to give you peace about disobeying God about doing the wrong thing. We see it in Genesis chapter three. In the very first temptation, Satan assured the woman, no, it's okay. The forbidden tree, it's, it's, good. it's good food. It'll make you wise. No, you surely won't die. He gave her peace about disobeying God. So that peace in your heart, that may not be God's affirmation of what you're doing. It may be Satan numbing your conscience as he leads you down a path towards death. 
So don't look at peace in your heart as a guide for your life. Look to God's word. Peace can be fleeting. Peace in your heart can be flaky. It can change based on what you had for lunch or what kind of mood you're in. But God's word never changes. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose. See, the problem with running from God is that God is already where you're going. You know that, right? Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. So here's the situation. All of these pagan sailors, they're scared out of their minds, and they're saying, okay, everybody, yo, go pray to your own God. Maybe he'll listen. Maybe he'll be in a good mood, and everything will be okay. And so they do what religious superstitious people do, right? They get out their, their crystals and their charms and their prayer shawls and the holy water blessed by the TV evangelist. They get all that going on, right? And it says they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So how ironic is this, right? They're up there on deck having a theological discussion, and the prophet of God, who's been given a message from God, he's below deck asleep. Now there's a play on words that's happening here in this verse that we really got to see. Do you see the word down in this passage? The word below? The book of Jonah is full of stuff like this. That word down is being repeated. And the word sleep there is a Hebrew word for for deep sleep. It's not like dozing off. It's not like Sunday afternoon, watching a football game, dozing in and out of sleep. Like this is a deep sleep like the one that Adam took, okay? So see what's happening. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the inner part of the ship. He goes down into sleep. It is a sleep of death. It is total spiritual disaster. And what you're getting is a picture of the downward progression of sin. It starts off with small disobedience, and it ends in total spiritual disaster. It's like this. You know, you go on vacation, you're at the beach, you're swimming in the ocean, you kind of walk out your hotel on the beach, you're getting there, you're having a good time. What happens? Five, 10, 15 minutes later, you look up, and you're 14 hotels down the beach. You're like, how did this happen? It's the drift of the current, right? It's how adulterous relationships at 40 begin with addictions to porn at 20. It's how eating disorders in college begin with jealousies not dealt with in high school. It's how that hard, rebellious heart at age 50 begins with resisting your God-given authority in adolescence. Church, we have to beware of the drift. Verse 6. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lots fell on, surprise, surprise, Jonah. It's like they spin the roulette wheel and every time God has the ball land on Jonah. Spin, Jonah. Again, Jonah. Verse 8. So they ask him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
This terrified them, and they ask, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So write down a couple more things. Our disobedience affects others. Our disobedience affects others. You and I, we never sin in private. There's some of you here, your friends and your family are suffering because of your disobedience. Your sin has made you an absent father or an unfaithful friend or a disappointing spouse. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis talks about those people who are running from God. He describes them as being see-through, where they have less and less substance. But those people who run toward God become more solid. They take on bright colors. Those running from God become less human. And when we go towards God, we become more of what God intended us to be, more alive, more human. And so the greatest gift that I can give to everyone who knows me, my wife and my kids, my neighbors, my coworkers, and you, is being close to God. The greatest gift that I can ever give is being close to God. Yeah, I do it for my own sake. I do it for the sake of God, but I also do it for theirs. And the greatest gift that you can give anyone is your own holiness. I think of it like this. You know when you're on a flight and they're having the pre-flight instructions and the flight attendants talk about how if there's a sudden change in elevation that the oxygen mask may drop? And what do they tell you? They say, make sure that you put your mask on first before you help out anyone else. And I've always thought that was kind of strange, right? Why, why, would, I, why would I look out for myself before I, I look out for my, my kids? Isn't that kind of the opposite of what, we, what that natural instinct is as parents? But there's a point in it, right? I can't help my child if I'm not breathing. And it's the same way spiritually. If you are passed out spiritually, you will kill those around you. And for some of you, people around you are dying because you're not walking with God. God wants to use you in their lives, but you're not breathing. Your failure to walk with God has eternally devastating consequences for the people around you. Your kids are growing up to be materialists because you're one. God's not a priority for your friends because he's not one for you. Your coworkers aren't going to believe in God because he's not really real in your life. Write this down. God sends storms to break his people from self-reliance. God sends storms in our lives to grab our attention, to to break us from relying on ourselves, and he humbles us through affliction. We're slaves to money, so God attacks it. We're addicted to people's approval, so God frustrates us in that. We're proud, and we don't want to listen to anybody, so God makes us fail. We're self-centered, so God allows our relationships to blow up. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you find yourself there right now. Now, let me be very clear here. I'm not talking about all affliction. Sometimes we suffer, and it has nothing to do with our disobedience. Sometimes it's the product of living in a fallen world. Let me make that clear. But listen, there are times where you knowingly disobey God, and he loves you enough to send a storm into your life. Now, you may be thinking, well, how do I know? Maybe I've done something wrong that I don't know about, and God's ticked off at me. No, no, no. 
If he sends that's kind of, this kind of storm, he'll make sure you know. If I'm trying to get my kids' attention, I don't hide it. I, I don't say, go to your room, and they're like, why? And I just say, I, I don't know, just figure it out. No. If you're in something that you suspect might be a storm from God, ask him. He'll make it clear. He is a speaking, communicating God. And so I simply want to ask, is this happening to you right now? If so, I'm telling you to submit to it. The only way you are going to survive the storm is by submitting to God in it. Because if Jonah had continued to fight the storm, it would have killed him and everyone else aboard. But when he submitted to the storm and he said, throw me into it, it led to his salvation. If you fight it, it will destroy you. If you submit to it, it will save you. And I just want to tell some of you, listen, it doesn't have to be this hard. For Jonah, he ends up in the belly of a fish that smelled like an outhouse at the county fair. It doesn't have to get to that point, okay? Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they ask him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So props, kudos to the pagan sailors. At least they didn't want Jonah to die, right? But now they find themselves in a rowing contest against God. How, how would you like that? You're rowing as hard as you can. You're giving all your effort. And God just has his finger on the stern and it's not going anywhere. Verse 14. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. I get a funny word picture here as I read this, because in the next couple of verses, it tells us that the giant fish swallowed Jonah. But that was after the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah hits the water, and the water turn, turns calm. It's like a stagnant pond. And so I picture in my head, he's thinking, cool, I'll just kind of hop back in the boat, and everything's better now, right? And then verse 17, the fish swallows him, and we're going to get to this in the next week. But what I want to do now is give you a few brief concluding thoughts that really set the tone for the whole book of Jonah and show you where we go from here. Number one, the book of Jonah shows you what a real sinner is. The book of Jonah shows you what a real sinner is. Like I said earlier, Jonah is upstanding in every other way. He's just not willing to do this. Jonah found himself in a dilemma. One of two things would happen through his preaching. Either Nineveh wouldn't repent, and Jonah would probably be killed by them, or Nineveh would repent, and then they wouldn't be destroyed, which would be bad news for Israel. So if, Ojo if Jonah obeyed God here, then he'd either lose his life or he'd lose what is most precious to him his position of status in a prospering nation. He'd lose his sense of identity. So Jonah would obey God until it required him obeying God in those areas that mattered most to him. 
those areas that defined him, those idols that he clung to most dearly. So that's the question for you. I would guess that, that most of us here today, most of us who are watching online, that you're pretty religious. You seek to live good lives. You seek to follow God's will as best as you can. Here's the question. Are you willing to obey God even if it costs you everything? Even if it takes you away from that thing which is most precious to you? Even if it takes you away from that thing that that defines your sense of identity? Jonah shows you what a real sinner is. To this day, Jews gather together on Yom Kippur. They gather together in the synagogues, and the book of Jonah is read. And at the conclusion of its reading, they all say in unison, I am Jonah. We are Jonah. Because Jonah is the religious person who is daily confronted with the question of whether or not they'll leave everything to follow God. The second concluding thought is this. The book of Jonah shows you who the real Savior is. The book of Jonah shows you who the real Savior is. Because there's a contrast that's being set up between how Jonah feels about the Ninevites and how God feels about them. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. God wants to see them forgiven. And Jonah is actually giving you a picture of who the real Savior is who would come for the Ninevites. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that he was a prophet like Jonah. He said that his death and his resurrection were a fulfillment of the sign given through Jonah. Jonah was cast out into the sea, and the sea became calm. He was swallowed by a fish and taken down into the depths of the ocean, and then three days later, he was brought back into the land of the living. Jesus was cast out into the ocean of God's wrath at the cross. And the great storm of God's wrath against our sin became calm. He was in the heart of the earth for three days, like Jonah, and then was resurrected. The difference is, of course, is that Jonah went through all this involuntarily because of his disobedience. Jesus went through all of it because of our disobedience. Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran toward his enemies. Jonah was on a mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on a mission of rescue because he loved them. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus gave up his life in self-sacrifice. And when Jonah saw that, he resented it. I've heard people refer to the God of the Bible before. Maybe you have too as judgmental. They say, how, how could God dare punish people for sin? Would you ever notice how as soon as we get a taste of evil against us, we cry out for vengeance? We cry out for justice. See, what we usually fail to understand is that all of our sin is to God what Nineveh's sin was to Jonah. Our sin is what crucified Jesus. It is infinitely more hideous to, uh, to God than what the worst sin against us is to us. Nineveh's sin against God was great. Our sin against God was even greater. 
You know how I told you I am Jonah? We are Jonah? Also say, I am Nineveh. We are Nineveh. Because when you see that, it changes you. What God wants is for his people to have a heart like his, a heart that overflows with goodness and compassion. And what you're going to see in the book of Jonah is that there are three possible responses to the word of God. The first possible response is what we might call flat-out disobedience. This is like Jonah here in the beginning, where God says to go and do one thing, and he goes, and you go do something totally different. The second type of response is what we might call dutiful obedience, where you obey out of a sense of obligation or a sense of duty. And this is what Jonah does in chapters 3 and 4. And I would guess that's where a lot of you are where you obey because you know it's the right thing to do. You believe God, you trust God, but you're doing it out of a sense of obligation, not out of a response of love. But the third possible response to the Word of God is what we might call gospel-transformed obedience. You see, God's not just after our obedience. I think that's a mistake that we often have. God is after a whole new kind of obedience. The the kind of obedience where we act like God acts because we love like God loves, where we have a heart like God. And the only way you will experience this is by having an encounter with God where you experience the depths of His grace. See, here's the diagnosis. That there are some of you who aren't living on mission. You're not generous. You're not deeply passionate about God because you've never had this deep experience of his grace. And that's what we're going to learn in the weeks to come. But before we get to that, let's take first things first. There are some of you who find yourself in the same place of Jonah. You're in a place where you're saying no to God in. And some of you, you find yourself in a storm because of that. And so I'm saying right now, why not turn this place into a deck of a ship and repent right here, right now? Listen, that storm in your life, it is not there to pay you back for your sin, but it's to bring you back from your sin. Jesus was paid back for your sin. Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath for you, and he took it all, everything. And that means that God's wrath is no longer in the storm. Only his love. The storm is not designed for retribution. It's designed for restoration. Instead of continuing to fight, why not get down on your knees right now and surrender to God? You you know what it is. Why do you keep running? God wants to bless your life and he wants to use you more greatly than you've ever imagined. Why are you resisting him? Submit to him. Repent. Experience the depth of his grace and see what he wants to do in your life today. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled and great, grateful for the great love that you have poured out to us. I, I thank you for this story of, of Jonah, this Old Testament prophet 
who shows us what a real sinner is, but he also shows us who a real Savior is. And that's why, God, we look to you and we thank you for Jesus. That Jesus was a perfect Savior who did everything right that Jonah did wrong. And we know that our life can have purpose and our life can have meaning. All of our sins can be forgiven because Jesus came to us and he loved us at our worst. God, the depth of your love, it's unsearchable, it's unfathomable. God, I pray that today we would receive your love, we would repent and turn from our wicked ways, and God, that you would set us on a new path, that we would be able to look in the mirror and say, I am Jonah, we are Jonah. God, help us to realize that that you love us enough to send storms in our life, to grab our attention, to wake us up, to get us to follow you. We thank you for that love. I pray that we would receive that love today. In Jesus' name, amen.